from Double Door Studios at Manassas National Battlefield Park. I'm Nikki Bland. And I'm Franny Robin. This is A Different Truth. A Different Truth can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please like and follow us on those platforms. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and a review. That helps us get more views and show up in more searches. You can also check us out at our website, adifferenttruthpodcast.com. We will share resources and information on our website and social media platforms, where you can also send questions, comments, and ideas for future podcasts. We really want this to be an interactive engagement with our listeners, so please let us hear from you. Thanks again for listening. In our last episode, we introduced you to Brandon Ellis, who shared his history and his heart with us. Let's jump back in with part two of our discussion with Brandon and hear his thoughts on what the church is facing today. Tell us a little bit about some of the businesses that you started and then we could wrap up there because I think we've done um, an amazing job covering uh, some of the topics that we wanted. But I I also appreciated you sharing um, ways in which, you know, we could recognize institutional um, hindrances that are a construct that serve as hindrances to ourselves and our children. Um, but, uh, But also I appreciate how candid you are and very honest about who Brandon is, who who you are, and what you've pursued. But I do know, um, along with the screw tape letters and the screw tape letter series that you've been working on, you'll if you don't mind sharing how people could learn a little bit more about that, but also some of the initiatives that you've been in, that you've started and that you're involved in now. And um I've been a creative pretty much all my life. Like art is art is my thing. Um so when it came into my own, um, I wanted to, number one, I wanted to figure out how I can do what I do and make an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, i say the first time I tried to do that was awful. I went to Africa. Um, and I say Africa because that's where my mind was. It wasn't that I went to Ethiopia. I went to Africa. You and, went to Africa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was honestly one of the most, like, uh, eye-opening experiences for me um, being in Ethiopia because I oh, came... Oh, you did go to Ethiopia? Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, uh, when I came back, I had seen firsthand what... And I'd experienced... I felt dirty because I felt used. I was like, man, I participated in this like white savior stuff. And I saw it firsthand and I understood what it was. And I was so angry um, because I saw all this money getting pushed into Africa. And I, I will say like the continent, um, because there's a lot like there's literally an industry of nonprofits across the continent there. Um, to include churches. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very I mean, much. We're going to talk about NGOs. Might as well. Mm, OK. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like when I think of nonprofits in in African nations, I very much specifically think about 
the church. <laughs> so in context, that's that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, I, did. I did it too. Yeah, I feel like we all have our, our one experience, whether it's donating money or whether it's it's going. But the reality, I'm is, not anti supporting nations and communities within Africa. I am pro equipment, like equipping the people. Right. I am anti white savior. See, my thing is I don't need to be there because I saw plenty of videographers and photographers there that that could have done what we were doing. That were African. Yeah. Oh, that were Ethiopian. Ethiopian. Oh, absolutely. Um, saw saw a couple in Uganda. I saw I saw some in Ethiopia. And I think my frustration is why are we going to these nations to to uplift these black people when we don't care about the black people here? And that's frustrating to me when I see I'm sorry, I'm getting a little heated up. Ooh, I, can feel but it. I like <laughs> I get really, really, really frustrated because the the same people that I'm seeing going and, and hugging like Ugandan children and, and Ethiopian children and wanting to love on them are the same people that are that are saying, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps to their next door neighbors or to the people in the next neighborhood over and they don't care. They won't give a dime there. They they don't care. You want to go take pictures of black babies? There's a neighborhood next door. I promise you. Go go for it. See well, even even more broadly, you know, we send people all over the world on yeah. missions. Yeah. But they can't come here. Right. You know. It's it's so interesting because this feeds into Whew, this feeds into a bigger conversation about about. Just keep going. We'll make this two episodes. The church, the church, yeah, <laughs> for real. The church and col- and colonization and and just white supremacy in the church in general. And there's like, I think that man, if if white people were to really sit and and just marinate in what the church has done over the last two three hundred years, just the last two or three hundred years, there would have to be a reckoning especially in this area in the dc area where people have stocks they have investments in these businesses that are surrounding the the uh, the dod that are either making weapons or sending weapons to other countries to indiscriminately kill christians muslims and anybody else and they're profiting off of those things and calling that money a blessing and i i i Man, there, there's so much to unpack about the white Christian experience in the D.C. area, because I think if that door were really open and I think there's a lot of smart pastors that are seeing this, that they really open that door. It would make them question how people are are brought into ministry, how fundraising practices, where that money come from, comes from. All those things will be called into question what they believe about Jesus and what they believe about sanctification, what they believe about biblical priority would all be called into question to a point where I don't think that if we dismantled it, they would really recognize their faith. Right. Yeah. Pastor Josh posted. He's been posting some interesting questions just Mm -hmm. to get people thinking. I won't get it exactly right, but uh, one of his recently was, you know, what would the church look like if we cared more about um, each other than our the color of our own skin? Was that it? No, political, if we political party, yeah, political affiliations, yeah. yeah, and the point was, if we really truly cared i feel like there's been this theme this summer about like loving one another the way Mm. jesus really calls us to Mm -hmm. um 
my daughter spoke at senior night at youth group last night and she gave the toned down version of her speech because I was like, you're going to kind of ruin everybody's senior night with that one. Because <laughs> she was like, I'm done. But um, <laughs> the I, whatever his question was along those lines, my, you know, I've been really thinking lately, like, you know what we'd look like? We'd look like the early church. Mm. And no joke, some guy came back and said, He'll never listen to this podcast, so I don't really care. He's like, that only lasted about six months, and it was a total failure, and that was never how God meant for us to live our lives. And I was like, well, well, well buddy. <laughs> I was like, okay, where's my paper bag? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's just like, it just breaks my heart. Like, what kind of, you know, you know what it is? And they will call evil good and good evil mm-hmm. because it. it and they're probably saying the same thing about me, right? I've been brainwashed, you know. How can you possibly think social justice is what Jesus called us to do? But I'm like, well, you let's... call me. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> it's yeah, just the... that's mind blowing to me because I watch and I read posts where people are making argument, that specific argument, actually. But I do believe it's it's from for some people from such a misinformed position and then the justification is we're now at a place where people are calling evil good and good evil and the argument that I see people make I'm like if you would just learn some of the history behind why people are protesting or why people are asking for justice you would cease to see it from a lens that you've lived and justify justice or salvation through those lens, through that lens, and and the history that some people have lived. It's a fact. I mean, it's it, it's the history mm. that they've lived, mm. and but it's very easy to invalidate because I don't know what you're talking about, and that never happened to me, so it must not be true. It must not be true, and then it's quantified with we're now in a place, and now we're living in a time where. Um, <laughs> I even heard, I even heard, I even read someone where they were lamenting the downward spiral of this beautiful nation and the protesters and the looters and the rioters of how we're losing, um, or how the the minority voice of the protesters and the looters and the rioters is now louder than the patriots of this great country. And someone actually followed up that post with a comment, yeah, it reminds me of um, the civil rights movement back in the 60s. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Amen. As a (laughs) negative comment, you know, as like in support of what the individual was saying, meaning something negative as opposed to understanding, yeah. But those, those are the people whose faith and religion is american exceptionalism and their god is not jesus like you just you you can't reconcile any of that with the gospel and if you don't believe that everyone deserves equal opportunity and that there are systems that were intentionally constructed to ensure that that never happened, then you don't believe in the Imago Dei and that everyone was created in the image of God, even the people who don't look like you. So I don't know what Bible you're reading. I think there's also, I think a big piece of that comes from 
there's there's like several types of theology in the U.S. And one that I see that's very prevalent with um, uh, the folks that kind of lean more to they lean away from empathy here mm-hmm. um, because they, they can't empathize mm-hmm. um, is the, the hyper logical theology. Everything is logical and there's not an emotional component to their relationship with God. And oftentimes, like I've been in I was part of a church that almost discouraged that um, and it was super interesting to me because um, there was a point in my walk where I, I think it was Louis Giglio. I did a Bible study and it was the first time someone had pointed out that like God commands us to feel. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's the, the letter first Peter um, where Peter says, oh, is it Peter? Is it, who wrote that? Is it Paul? I can't remember who wrote it. My bad. I think it was from Paul Peter. Um, there's in the part in a section of it, it says, place your hope fully on Christ. And that is like, that is a command, right? Hope fully. Um, and what we see with God is that God is an emotional God. Um, he, he, he experiences like a full range of emotions from the time when Saul didn't didn't adhere to his commands and he said he regretted people are like oh does that mean god didn't know his no he just he felt he felt deeply just regret and that's a feeling right and so like we have this god that has this full spectrum of of feelings and and can understand compassion and i think a big piece of what's wrong with us intrinsically is that oftentimes we kind of shy away from our emotions to a point where we even look at like guard your heart and we rephrase that and we we contextualize that as protect your emotions Mm. um and protecting your emotions is amoral if you really think about it and i think there's a lot of people that are stuck in this place where if they have to face up to these things and and own them it, it will rend them emotionally in a way that they have never experienced before so they're doing what they believe is what they know how to do and what they've practiced for a majority of their lives well i think it's just like anyone who's trained to respond a certain way, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you think about um, abuse victims. Mm. They, their abusers get away with it because they're trained to keep their secrets. Yeah. And it's no different than, I mean, the concept of we are trained to believe certain things. Um, especially in the white evangelical church or just the white church, Christian church in general, um, that become understandably so fundamental to our own identities that when you start pushing on those things, you're really pushing on someone's identity. Mm. And it's that's scary stuff, right? And I think, though, it's... I kind of view, like... People who are willing to do that, though, it's a type of therapy, right? Yeah. Because you go to therapy and it's painful, right? You got to dig down into that. You got to rip off the scab. You got to dig out mm-hmm. that, get all the way down to the bottom of that infection, right? It hurts. But you know, if I don't go through this pain, I'm not going to get better, you know? So mm-hmm. I think. I don't know. I mean, the way I think about it, it's like most of the things we're hung up about are not 
necessarily literally God's words. Mm-hmm. It's what man has interpreted them to mean. Right. And it's the, you know, denominationally specific spin, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or not that those are bad things, but those were not made by God. And God can handle us going, really? You know, he, he if he can't handle that, he's not much of a God. So I don't know. I mean, it's scary, yes, but maybe I'm just at the point where I don't care. <laughs> like, just, I got to figure this out, you mm. know? So, but I, I know that's not where everybody is. Um, and I think that, it's just one of those things that you have to separate the literal word of God from what we have done to use it to our own best interest, because that's usually where it gets way off. I was having this conversation with my kids a while ago. I actually wrote a draft of my thoughts and growing up in the Caribbean, which of course we get to talk about because now um Kamala Harris is <laughs> Jamaican yeah. and Indian, okay? <laughs> and uh, I saw this lady put up, this black lady who's a conservative black lady. She's a Trump supporter. And she put a, her post was a hashtag, she ain't black. I almost fell to the ground. Um, but digress. Growing up in the Caribbean, right? Um, I was talking with my kids about this. I remember when I was doing a contrast with American Christianity and Caribbean Christianity. Mm-hmm. So I, I I eventually got to a place where I call it the Caribbean God and the American God, right? <laughs> so um, so my kids were asking me all these questions. And um, I don't remember growing up and asking God for... I, I, I know we prayed that God would heal the sick and take care of the sick and provide, you know... First of all, a lot of the times when people describe Caribbean people as poor, it was usually outsiders coming in, and it was a comparison of their wealth against what things we didn't have, but we didn't know. We, I mean, we are not poor. We don't have a poverty mindset. We, 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 are, we don't have the develop. Our nation is not a first world country. We're a developing country, but... According we, to standard capitalism. Standard capitalism. So we we don't have a, we're not, materially, we, yeah, we are lacking, but that didn't make us poor. Well, anyways, so we, we, in church, we would pray and we believed God. We believed the Bible. We believed every word as if it was living, breathing, alive, Old Testament and new. We prayed for healing, but it was always according to the will of God. Mm-hmm. So if someone didn't make it while we were praying, then we accepted according to the will of God. If we needed something, I don't remember praying for needs, like the things we needed materially. I don't remember that. Um, I, and if it was done, maybe our parents did it and I didn't hear it, but it was very communal. The, the village life was very communal. So people took care of each other as best as they could, mm-hmm. especially if someone passed away or a newborn or an elderly or a sick person. The community took care. I remember as a young girl, my grandmother would give me like these carriage canisters of food and I would take them to different elderly. So like on a Monday, I'd probably go to two elderly homes and drop off food and sit there and talk with them because they were elderly and shut in. 
where so I contrasted it in my life as a Christ follower in America. And I remember the my first 18 plus years, we were in Alexandria. I went to school in Alexandria. And I recall people asking God for specific things, very specific. American God or American Christians ask God for specific things and believe that he's going to give it to them just so. And I would contrast Dominican Christians believe, you know, according to the will of God. And I have had, I had this one particular conversation that comes to mind where someone wanted a car and they were praying that God would bless them with a car because they needed the car for family and to get to work and things like that. And so they got a credit card and made a down payment on the car using their credit card. And then they put a license plate blessed or highly favored or something like that. And it blew my mind, blew my mind. Um, and so, you know, the conversation was like, well, did God answer your prayers? You know, is this the way he answered it? And I was in my mind, I interpret, and it may not be so, but I was literally watching this individual pray about a thing, but God was taking too long and they made the prayer request happen. And I've watched that on numerous occasions in numerous things and that, that God seemed to bless American Christians with their prayer requests just so. T's cross, I dotted, just so. Mm. And it seemed like in contrast, the Caribbean God never gave Caribbeans their prayer requests just so. And so I would talk to the kids and I, I, you know, I was trying to figure out, we didn't, we prayed if your will be done. And so sometimes I was thinking, well, maybe we didn't challenge God enough. Like maybe American Christians challenge God more than Caribbean Christians did. Or, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking these thoughts through because I've seen people go into debt to answer their prayer requests Mm. and then give God thanks for it. And it's counter Bible. Mm. I've seen people make certain decisions, you know, certain really contrary to the Bible make decisions about, you know, having a child. And then, you know, um, sometimes the the decisions, the consequences of the decisions that transpired was always justified because God, there was always an explanation as to why God was allowing it to be so. And none of it was attributed to the decisions we were making or I saw happen according to my own will. So I, I like seeing some of that patterns started following some of the prairie quest decisions for American God to answer my prayers just so. And they come with very burdensome consequences. And they do. And I actually called my mother to ask her some questions about prayer requests, requests that we've had and faith and believing God for things. And then I contrasted it. And I guess also I'm I'm answering my own question of the the conversation that we were having earlier. I guess you can believe something so much to the fact that it becomes your truth Mm. and you make it your truth and you make it the blessing that you want it to be and you're attributed to God. So when I, when I, when I unpacked it all, no wonder we are so malnourished and maldeveloped in our churches. Mm. Like, if, if we were to pull all those layers back 
and leave all the habits and decisions that we've made for the sake of comfort at the door and walk into the presence of God and walk out according to his plans and purposes for our lives, that experience will be, for some of us, so completely different than the God of comfort or the God of politics that makes your president the chosen one or the God of taking on an identity for your country as the same God of Israel, you know, that the things that we do to believe that we're trusting God, but it's all based on our ability to experience comfort. Right. Because in Dominica, our comfort was, you know, whatever God's will was. And it's very, it's very interesting to see the two. So I do a lot of times um, live that way, just trusting and believing by faith. And mistakes and all, none of us are perfect. So I don't feel like I need to caveat that because it's given. But I don't think that we should always have this condition for comfort, you know? I think it should always just be by faith. But the American Christianity is all, there's this, 90% of comfort that's factored into the faith. It's a very difficult thing to be a part of. Interesting dynamic to actually watch. Yeah, I mean, I think there are plenty of Christians who go through some really, really difficult things, yeah. for sure. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily include, you know, every, obviously every Christian's not like that. Right, We're right. generalizing. Um, but there is a, maybe a little bit of Sarah in all of us, right? Like, oh, well, I know you said yes, I'm going to get a song, yes, but yes. I'm, I'm just going to help you out a little bit. Let me help you a little <laughs> you bit. Know? And, and we get impatient, right? And that's sort of, especially in this day, a little bit of a recognition of our yeah. immediate gratification kind of society, right? And it's easy to fall into that in our Christianity, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you really think about it, like, we think about pretty much everything is a process here in the U.S. We think about systems and processes like, you know where your kids are going to be next year. If they're mm -hmm. still in grade school, they're going to be in the next grade, and the next grade, and the next grade. And when they graduate, they're going to take one of like several paths. Mm -hmm. And so you, there's this trajectory mm -hmm. when you finish school or you get established or whatever, whenever it is appropriate in your culture, you, you, you get married. And maybe you don't, uh, maybe you have kids, maybe you buy a house, but the reality is that like God doesn't, doesn't function based on these systems that are created. That's what I, yes. And this, this goes back to like, if you think about like when Jesus walked with the Hebrews, right? The Hebrews had created all of these systems, um, to make sure that people weren't breaking the law. They created these systems to make sure people were basically educated on the Torah. And then for people that wanted to, to go further than that, to become disciples of, of who, whatever, whatever rabbi, they created systems for those. There was, there was systems within this culture. We just call them traditions, but I'm going to just call them systems. And the reality is Jesus didn't adhere to any of those things, which ultimately led to him getting killed. And I think in, in most seminaries, they call these things hedge laws. He didn't adhere to those things and that made him an outcast God does not adhere to the laws that we create for our society. And I think that scares a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think a lot of people really understand 
that their justification for whatever they believe a blessing is actually like biblically you you are are a Hebrew in the time that that Jesus walked because you are following a system like you pray and you're not waiting on the Lord maybe you are but you proceed within that system yeah you get that credit card like everybody else does and you 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 go and and you do that you don't get out of debt and 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 like when you go through a system that's been created by other christians we've all gone through day ramsey school which is fine like it's great it helps you get out of debt but yeah. it's it is a system yeah um and but God again is more we've, than that. americans we've been trained that's how we operate right find the system find yeah. the 10 steps find the process you know we've curated what expectation means yeah Thanks for sharing that. It actually reminded me of something that you shared with me, Nikki, by Corey Leak. Um, I guess an explanation that will probably even answer that for me also. Um, the what would Jesus do thought process. Mm. And you're, you're right. Um, Corey did a great job explaining that. We don't know what Jesus would do about a, in a lot of situations. We have the examples of what he did in uh, situations and uh, even in similar things, he's often at and at times responded differently, you know. So for us to and I, I forgot the example he gave, um, he was using. But when within the the church or within, I guess our own faith, um, when we're trying to figure out the best way to to handle um, institutions or you know systems. Uh, and we're using justification of faith to do it, mm-hmm. uh, and almost everything we've talked about, especially within the church, is an understanding that we we don't necessarily know what Jesus would do. No. Yeah, and I don't think we, I think we put limits on God when yeah. we do that. And yeah, and I mean, I know this because I've done it. I'm not throwing <laughs> any rocks, but yeah. you know, I think that like we can only handle so much right i always like to say like the human god made the human brain like it's so complicated it can't understand itself (laughs) you know um so i think the finite sliver of him we think we understand Mm -hmm. is probably i just can't wait to see how blown away we are you know even when you think about something as simple as every man woman or child every human being made in the image of god well he made us to look as different as we do mm-hmm. so why are we so hung up on him and i'm not even just saying white jesus but you know all cultures have iconography that reflects themselves because that's what they're familiar with that's what they know is he going to look like all of those things you know like we just okay admittedly white right i'm picturing the old man in the sky with the beard and the long flowing white hair, <laughs> you know, cause haven't quite retrained my brain yet, but whatever he looks like or middle Eastern man, even, which that's what Jesus looked like. But I don't know, like I can't even articulate it, but just the, the boundlessness that is God is something that a lot of people can't even get their brains around understandably. So, yeah. right. And so yeah. we're just more comfortable if we say, okay, Here's this little box, and I'm I'm good with you right there. And then when I need you, you know, I'll open the mm-hmm. box and I'll I'll limit what you're 
going to do in my life to what I can conceive of you being able to do in my life. Yeah, well, maybe that's a perfect place that we could have start with some of these conversations, especially maybe if we've encountered when we're encountering difficult people is to recognize our ability to process information and truth is according to what our brains will allow us to process. But since we're at different places, I don't know, Nikki. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm just like totally stream of consciousness at this point. I don't even remember (laughs) what our topic is, but Uh, yeah. I just have so many questions and like so many little things that I'm like, yeah, what about that? Yeah. Like where we were, you know, saying earlier, kind of when we were upstairs, like deconstructing or decolonizing, mm-hmm. whatever phrase you want to use, your your Christianity and yeah. think, like peeling it back to its most essential um, concepts. There's like three things there personally that that like I feel like mentally I observe this topic most hours of the day. Um, and so there's like, when we're talking about, about decolonizing our, our own experience, whether you're white or black, right. It's the same thing, but the process looks different. Um, and so personally, there are certain things about, about Jesus that I learned because a majority of my Christian upbringing was, was curated by white people. And so there are things, there, there are systems that I have had to unlearn and go back and read, um, and really re- like I, I had to, and I'm still working on this, get away from this idea of sanctification. Mm. Um, conceptually sanctification is really great, but like it is not like on the list of like biblical priorities in the gospel, like it, it should not be prioritized as high as the white American church makes it. Um, it's almost placed above the relationship. Like this is your barometer for your relationship that's here. The reality is like, it's just a side effect. And honestly, like you're, you're meant first and foremost for a relationship with the Lord. So tell me, cause everybody probably thinks something a little bit different or not. Everybody thinks the same thing. What do you mean by sanctification? Uh, this process of, of Jesus making you a better person or of conforming you to the image of Christ, which in the white church typically means making you a better person. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of like theological, like, like RTS for, for reformed theological seminary. I don't know if I should just say this because maybe cut this out for reformed theological seminary. It means being, being like a right leaning conservative Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you say the same thing of like Liberty University, Southern, uh, California Southern Baptist University. They all have these these ideas of what sanctification means. Um, and honestly, the way that I have seen it, I've been to a bunch of different churches, unfortunately. And the way that I've seen it enacted is more cultural than anything. So when I, when I think about like sanctification i think about cultural sanctification of everybody acting the same because there's this one person that everyone looks up to for the men and one person that everyone looks up to for the women and they dress like this person they talk like this person and they think like this person this is their thought leader and it's not christ it is this person and it may not necessarily be the pastor but it is their spiritual leader and i think it is the same thing on the other side and unfortunately i see that in not just the white church, but I also see that in the black church as well. The problem with that is that it robs Christ 
of his ability to conform you to how he needs you to be Mm -hmm. and not necessarily what everybody says Christ is like. Like, remember, Paul was in the desert for three years. For three years, he had an exposure to only Christ. And then he was in he was in um, Jerusalem for what, like 15 years before he started his ministry? Hmm. I don't remember. I don't know either. I, I, I think it, I think it was something like 18 years before he started his ministry where he just dwelt with Christ and God just figured out who he wanted to be and brought that onto him. He gave him his character. And I'm sure there was a lot of work that Paul had to do unpacking different things from his previous faith where that, that made him malleable enough to be able to to be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. But we have to allow ourselves to to take sanctification off of that pedestal. That's number one of, man, how good am I? Man, I'm still sinning this way. Man, I'm still doing these things. And just focus on like the 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 most important commandment. Right. And Jesus says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Right. Like if you unpack each of those things, you love the Lord your God with all your mind. By like, if you have doubt, pursue it. Don't just sit with it. Right. Like educate. Again, yourself. He, mm-hmm. he can take it. A hundred percent. Love him with all your heart by by making sure that that. I mean, you have to even define what heart means. I think of that in terms of what one of the kids was talking about last night. Um, really not having other any other gods before him, yeah. like your heart. And really, what are you dedicated to? What is that thing that just. You're, you you got to make that actionable yeah. like um where you where you store your affections mm-hmm. yes yeah, so i was thinking about the feeling conversation you mm. had earlier yeah and so but like when you make that actionable kind of like it 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 gives you a context for what it looks like okay how do you love the lord your god with all your heart and that looks for different for everybody mm-hmm. it requires the process of getting to know you and who god made you to be understanding where does your heart lean Mm-hmm. And and how can you meet Christ in the gaps of that and give him those affections? Because certainly for me, I like I like doing stupid things like climbing rocks and my affections can be for sandstone or, or granite <laughs> before it can be for Christ. And I have, <laughs> I understand that about myself. So I have to place Christ between between me and those things mm-hmm. yeah. um, to keep those affections pure. And so when you conceptualize it that way, it's like, oh, no, my relationship has to come first. Not what I'm doing, but really taking a mental inventory of like, where am I at mentally? Mm -hmm. Right. Change the way you think. Metanoia. Repentance. That's commonly just just all throughout scripture. Just change the way you think. Hope fully. Place all of your hope on Christ. Right. These are some of the things that that God tells us to do. So when we're talking about unpacking, right, and and decolonizing, what we really mean is jumping off of that Rube Goldberg machine that that we set into motion whenever we prayed that prayer. Mm -hmm. We were stuck in these churches and and being the domino that falls off the path. So you don't have to go down this Christian system like you. You can be a Christ follower without being an American Christian. And that's real. And I think we're coming to a place right now where we have to we have to to understand that the American church, whether it decides to be a immovable monolith 
or whether it decides to to adhere to Christ and cling to the feet of Christ. Like it doesn't change how we need to act in the church. Like when I go into a church, I I have to reframe my mind. And I've been thinking about this all quarantine of like, yo, what would it look like if me, I'm a black, I'm a black cisgendered man, like in, in the black community, I'm at the top of the food chain. I am the white man of the black community, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but like even where I am positionally, right, my call is to to if I want to be first, I must be last. So what does it look like for me to wash the feet of the black woman that is in the church every time I step into into those doors and make her feel honored above all things? Um, and I think like, man, if the church were to get there, if, if individually white people were to get there, like who is the least among us? And let's let's propel them and make them feel like like they are <laughs> like they are honored because they are and make them feel all the value that they have. That is like the aroma of Christ right there mm-hmm. where people look at the community and they say, what is this? Right. And people, you hear pastors talk about diverse community. And it's like, you can get you can get 50 black people and 50 white people and 50 Spanish people and 50 Asian people in a room together. Who cares? <laughs> like You see that all the time. I see it at protest all the time. You get all sorts of people, all sorts of people with different belief systems, hugging each other, praying together. It's not different. So there needs to be this thing that sets the church apart. But until we get to this place where we decolonize how we think of, of, man, these are the people that need to be of the highest honor. These are the people that need to be in leadership because this is what this says. This is what this says. And we just do the things that God says to do to love each other well. We need to get there. Yeah. And a big, sorry, I'm still stream of consciousness still. Go. Um. Even beyond that, even talking about this conversation of racism, man, I think one of the most helpful things that a white person can do is is understand that racism is prejudice enacted in a negative way. Prejudice in and of itself is not inherently wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people need to understand that and start objectifying racism and not not necessarily taking it so personally. Because if you even think about it, if you flip it around and you look at it a different way, one of the first things that God says about us is that he's creating a prejudice, right? Like he creates man. He says it's good. He created everything before that. He created the stars, the moon, all that good stuff, the beaches, the oceans. And he says it's good. Then he creates man and woman. And it's not until he creates both of them that he says it's very good. Right. And so just by saying good versus very good, God is creating a prejudice for mankind favor against the rest of humanity. And so when we're thinking about these things, it's like, okay, if I am prejudiced against these people, how can I turn that into favor? Because that is is the image bearer of Christ. These are the ways that I feel like white people start need to start having these internal dialogues in a more biblical fashion, Hmm. because on the opposite end of their racism is two sides of the same coin that can very easily be favor. Because all your all all it is is like I notice something different about you. Now, what I choose to do with that is going to radically affect it like that's going to affect my perception. No, if I notice that you have different skin, you have different hair or whatever, and I choose to honor that, that I choose to uplift that, and I choose to celebrate that, then I'm treating you a favor. 
Oh my gosh, that's good. I'm thinking about how the opposite is true. What what actually happens is the opposite, right? right? It's different. Yeah. So it must somehow be less than. Mm. It's other than white, so it's not as good. But I think even if we were to do what you just said, I I would take it a step further and maybe this is what you had in mind, but just it's not just I'm going to honor you for your differences, but I'm actually going to make myself less. Mm. And I'm going to listen to what you have to say. You know what I mean? It's like this, because we see that a lot where we're totally fine having a multicultural congregation. And maybe we even have one or two black or non-white people in leadership. But how many white people purposely go put themselves under the leadership of somebody who doesn't look like them? Mm -hmm. So it's not just... Hey, I love black people. Do you love them enough to be silent and listen to their words? Do you love them enough to be less powerful and give them more power? Mm. Um, which is the scary thing, right, for yeah. white people. Because in order for, um, you know, even when you talk about, th- there's always this expectation that in order for you to do better, I must have to do worse, you know. And I'm not even talking about reparations and everybody thinking they're going to have to write a check to their black neighbor. (laughs) But, you know, it's just this power dynamic. I mean, I always think of racism as prejudice plus power. Right. But you're using your power to act on your prejudices in a negative way. Right. Um, So I like that, that the opposite of prejudice opposite way to use prejudice positively is with you know as favor right um but i think that's very scary for people i think it's also it requires critical thought which oftentimes outside of dissecting scripture in a dutch theological you know study fashion we don't necessarily do an application you know what i'm saying yeah and and just getting back to the feeling thing when we do it it, it reduces the whole conversation mm. to this, you know, theolo- theoretical debate. Yeah. And it's like we're talking about human beings yeah. with hearts and minds and feelings and families. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very easy to have this objective conversation about it. It is, which is somewhat what we're doing now. So I feel like I want to revisit allyship Mm -hmm. um and and just give like just just a thought on that um for white listeners that you have um in my i think you had said uh, with allyship you don't get to choose whether you're an ally like black people get to do that Mm -hmm. um and I, i had this thought and i was thinking man yeah we do get we do have that privilege of being able to choose but like ultimately we don't choose people who are on the bench and i think a lot of white people are are waiting for an invitation to be an ally or an, or they're waiting to get called on to the floor and uh i i think of it more like we're not playing basketball where i already have all of my teammates and i'm calling them up uh i i look at this like it's a it's an open tryout i need you to grab a ball and shoot a three yeah 
I need you to, to grab another ball and shoot a three. I need you to play some defense. I need you to sh- show me your free throw. Show me your crossover. Hit me with the sham God. Something like <laughs> let me show me what's up. Because in that moment, then I can I can look at you and say you're on the team. OK, so pulling on that thread. I feel like what you just described would be advocacy. And then when you say, OK, you're on the team. You know what I mean? Like, I think we can advocate yeah. like I, or what would you say the difference is between advocacy and allyship? There's a, well, I mean, advocacy can be allyship. And For so sure. there's there's there is there is when we're talking about on the spectrum of like advocacy. I mean, that's that's more activism versus versus adv- advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're talking about like allyship. Right. Um, and ally is somebody who's going to turn up like if I'm at a party. And I get into a fist fight with somebody, um, an ally of mine is going to come between us and come to my defense or come to my like and go on the offensive, whatever that looks like. Right. That's an ally. That's somebody that's like they're in your corner when you need them. And then you have the accomplice. And to me, I look at the accomplice as somebody who's like. They might have started the fight. <laughs> like they saw us jawing at each other and and dude rolled up he was like you don't want the business clock and that's like and i know we're both going to jail that to me is is like allyship versus accomplice but the reality is that it all fits on the spectrum of of action like you just have to be about that action whether it's like either speaking up mm-hmm. or or stepping up whatever it looks like it could be advocacy or it could be I've had people I've been very, very vocal on social media um, because for like eight years, I've had a big audience of white people and I've been able to kind of toe the line of, you know, I'm at Aubrey made me snap a little bit. But I've been able to toe the the line of like, quote unquote, respectability and, and providing perspective um, without without hurting feelings mm-hmm. and, and I'm over it now. But the cool thing is that I've had white friends um, from college, some people that I connected with via Instagram or, or, or through like organizing networks. And, and now going to somebody's house, it was a party. big to do at Hobby Lobby. It, yeah. it is. And, but it's like, that's a very, like, I don't think I've ever been in a black person's house and see we're all unprocessed cotton on it. Listen, I grew up in, the town where my father lives, there are fields of cotton. And so I, I, I'm i not even going to go there. I'm going to no, stay on topic. Just no. <laughs> I went to a housewarming party and saw a cotton wreath above the, the, the fireplace. I'm like, oh, that's that's uncomfortable. And uh, and they didn't feel they were like, yeah, we think it's really beautiful. I was like, you just got raw, unpicked cotton. In and I was like, all right, that's cool. But their reality is very different than mine. So immediately they're uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about it. They're not going to take it down. I, I don't expect them to. Now, the difference is we go to the same church. We went to the same church and on stage, they had these like big like water jugs with like the same raw, unprocessed cotton in them. And it's the Unitarian church. So they change all the decorations, take down all the Unitarian symbolism and all that other stuff. And then they put up their own little decorations. So every week intentionally, they put this cotton up there. And this church touted itself as like a very diverse church. In fact, it's written into its mission statement that it wants to see the diversity uh, in Manassas reflected in the body of the church. So I bought it up one day because at like playing several weeks of worship in a row, I'm like, 
I I'm like, the like, hey, pastor, so-and-so, uh, is there like a, like a biblical reason why you got like a theological reason why is there symbolism to the cotton? I'm just curious before, before I ask what I ask. He's like, no, it's just a decoration. I was like, could you take it down? He's like, why? I was like, it's real uncomfortable, man. Like, it was like a hundred years ago. I would have been picking that. And it's, it's like, that's not very long. It's just, he's like, really? I'm like, it's uncomfortable. I'm probably not the only one that feels that way. He's like, no one else has said anything. I'm like, I feel like it's better to just kind of err on the side of, of, of safety and not, somebody said something. Well, then we'll see. We'll see. So he's like, he takes it down. Three weeks later, they're right back up. Kid you not. Had the same conversation with him again, like two weeks later. And he was frustrated that I brought it up again. And then like two months later, they finally took it down when somebody else said something. Yeah, but that, that you know, goes, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah. And that just, you know, goes back to the, the confidence in having allies. One, believe you. Yeah. Just believe you. They don't have to get it. Yeah. yeah. It's Just not a re- re- prerequisite for you to yeah. necessarily yeah. understand. Um, but that, like, kind of go- the reason why I brought that up is because we oftentimes see these moments where white people are not, specifically in a Christian context, they, they aren't supportive or they're argumentative. Mm-hmm. And so as black people, we're always fighting from a position. We're always speaking from a position of having to prove. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not allyship. Like I shouldn't have to debate you on how I feel about something or how our culture looks at something. That's that's just I shouldn't have to debate you on that. It's not one of the I think uh, Cedric Lundy is the one I believe that said it. You know, my experience is not up for debate yeah it's just not it's it's a fact <laughs> you know my lived experience is just a fact and yeah. it's not up for you to quantify approve validate it's mm-hmm. just a fact and if we would get to that place where you know um the favor that we uh we have because of who we are and how we're created um in the image of god would be the leading response yeah especially within the church it's kind of hard to expect that outside of the church but i think you reminded me of that today nikki that yeah that pastor josh said he what said he what, learned what what i expect from the church i get from the world and what i expect from the world i get i'm getting from the church facts facts it is scary mm-hmm. that is a very scary reality to live in um but also this kind of feeds into into you know, diversity has been on the top on on uh, it's been on the table for a long time. This is not and it didn't just turn 2010 and pastors mm-hmm. were like, we need more black people. We need more Spanish people and Asians. Mm-hmm. No, this has just been this has been a topic of conversation for a very long time. And I'm wondering, like, when are we going to get to the point when pastors understand that like that was a small scenario in which I'm I understand that that pastor is not qualified to lead a diverse church. And so what they what they want and what they're after, they're not the ones to lead the charge on that. So I'm wondering, when are we going to start seeing 
white head pastors relinquish the highest seat to minorities, to to black and brown bodies who can comparably lead the church. Yeah, that's what we were talking about before. I mean, you have to be willing to put yourself in a subservient position to black leadership. And Mm -hmm. um, we see it all the time. Yeah, You know, same with elevating white voices on black issues. Like there was a some online discussion topic where it was talking about how to empower black women and no kidding it was two white guys <laughs> like wow just and no ever is like yeah this is gonna be great like really but it's just so foreign for yeah. white people to not be in charge yeah. and yeah. and austin channing brown does a phenomenal job in her book i'm still here um you know not only is she she introduces how to relinquish the power, but she gives suggestions. She literally says, you know, not the music pastor, not your janitor, mm. not your security detail, Come on. you know, not your usher. Um, and she 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 just disqualify those roles when you're interested in sharing power. And, you know, not the one woman that's white, you know, it's. Yeah. It's you really have to invest in in people and you really have to bring those voices to the table so that because if they're not heard, they're not going to be represented. And that's going to be across the board for the people in your congregation. So once pastors get to that place where they have to understand, you know, and I I do have my own little issue with that. But, um, Brandon, it has been a pleasure having you this conversation, as you can tell, (laughs) and on episodes of money. Part one and part two. So yeah, this is uh, and, and can I say one more? Thing? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. I just want to encourage pastors to not curate the black voices within their within their congregation. If you don't want to relinquish power, please, please do not put together a console of your trusted black members. Yeah. Because you are only curating black voices that you can agree with, and that is not what you need. It is not what you need. Well, actually, there's a word that we could use to identify what that is. Implicit bias. And uh, tokenism. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) So, but again, Austin Tennant Brown does a really, really, really good job with explaining that. I'm telling you, get her book, I'm Still Here. She talks a lot about tone policing of black women, mm. their voices when they're speaking, you're expressing their passion, um, you know, uh, um, and she also talks about white evangelical pastors having these meetings with black pastors. And it's for the sake of controlling the outcome, because when you have the meeting, you don't have any black leaders in authority. So the, the words get re-expressed through the lens of, again, the white pastor so it's not really truly shared through the black experience or the lens of people of color or bipoc people so brandon we you know go ahead yeah, no, i was just going to recommend one more book the color of compromise yes. by jamar tisby which we've mentioned before solid book i mean if you want to see understand the history of the church in yes. america mm. that's the book's pretty you. much the encyclopedia right mm-hmm. there i highly recommend i actually, and i'm sure there are many others but i can only absolutely. go with what i have read my stack read is book. high it's one of the best books that I've read this year, and I every page, it's underlined, and so I I, I don't I, I don't know if I 
should praise it or he should tell me that I abused it. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, it's a great read. Thank you for pointing that one out, Nikki. It's The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Brandon, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing with us. We are- I'm like your new best friend. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this was awesome. This really. is super fun. <laughs> we would love to have you back because there's so many things that we could actually talk about in greater detail specifically as it pertains to the church, as it pertains to politics, as it pertains to the upcoming election. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, and really continue to unpack the faith perspective and, and, and definitely uh, highlight history. Yeah. So, Brandon, where can people find you? You can find me at uh, the Eyes of B. That's T H E E Y E S O F B um, on Instagram. That is also a website, theeyesofb.com. Uh, and uh, just Brandon Ellis on Facebook. And there's a Sending lot of my us. my friend so request now. There we go. <laughs> and uh, you can find more on the screw tape letters on. Uh, the white screw tape letters on the website. I will also share my. I mean, I didn't like one of those. What? I know you had one. Yeah, she's she's featured in one of one of the uh, the letters. Really? Did I share Brandon? Oh my god! I don't think you did. I don't think I, I don't oh, think yeah. I liked one of the pictures. <laughs> that was my favorite one so far. Really? Yeah. I was like, okay. I had to stop myself when I was writing it because I was like, Whoa. that was good. I'm so intrigued by that. Yeah, that was good. Okay, I'll share it tonight when I get home. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Yeah, for real, you can stop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. We are so honored to have met Brandon and shared the mic with him for what we hope was just the first of many conversations. By listening to and learning from each other, we look forward to discovering more truth and coming together as reconciled people. Talk to you soon. This podcast was recorded at Double Door Studios in Gainesville, Virginia, hosted by Franny Robin and Nikki Bland. Produced and engineered by Kenny Bland. Original music by Ryan Robin. Original artwork by Ellie Bland.